27th, 2020. Uh, my name is Stephen Morrison at Cookville Church of the Nazarene, and we're in this study called Man's Search for Meaning on the book of Ecclesiastes. And I was talking to my dad, who's also a pastor, uh, the other day, and he just was really curious about how is that study going, because uh, because Ecclesiastes is not a book that uh, that a lot of a lot of people choose to study deeply. It's you you read it maybe if you go through the Bible in a year each year, and you're like, man, that is fascinatingly depressing, and you move on and you kind of forget about it, other than to kind of uh, talk about it in hushed tones, like the the relative that that uh, nobody talks about except at family reunions, and so on and so forth. It's a, it's a strange book, I guess, is what I'm saying. And, uh, and so he was just really curious about the approach and, and how that was going. Now, I know that this is probably not an easy study. I think a lot of people tune in um, looking for some more stereotypical kind of encouragement. Um, and I, I don't think that this book is lacking in encouragement but the tone of it certainly is not the typical tone that encouragement comes in. And so we've been going through this study. We've titled it Man's Search for Meaning because Solomon is, he, he sets out on this journey to discover the meaning in life. And um, I don't know what his expectations were, but as we have read through this, I've gotten this growing sense that maybe this became something more and something bigger than what he thought it would be. I don't know that he thought it was going to be so hard to find meaning, that it was going to be um, so difficult to figure out why he, why he was on planet Earth. What is the point of humanity? Um, and it makes me think about uh, like when, when GPS first came out. Um, we, Garmin was kind of at the forefront of the GPS systems before they were on your phone. And I remember being able to borrow this nice Garmin GPS for long trips when I was in college uh, from a family member. And um, I loved, uh, you know, it was such a novelty, that little computer voice. Oftentimes it was British sounding or whatever. And uh, there was something I found so satisfying about punching in an address. And then when you get there, She'd say, "You have arrived," um, or or uh, there was a man. There was a man voice, and he would say, "You have arrived at your destination." And <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know why, but for some reason, when we got there, I just I. It's almost like I didn't want to get out of the car or do anything until I heard that because it just made it just made me feel like I'd accomplished something, and there was a sense of peace or whatever that came from just knowing of hearing that. And I think that's kind of what Solomon is looking for at this point. Like we, we're only uh, three and a half chapters into what is a uh, twelve-chapter book, and already it just feels like he's becoming so weary of this exploration. Like there's no hope, and he just wants to hear, "You have arrived at your destination." Um, Solomon begins this whole thing by looking at what life has to offer in an attempt to find meaning. He has access to and tries everything there is to try under the sun. Recently, we heard that Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, owner of Amazon.com, is, is about to break $1 trillion in his net 
worth. And they're talking about how he'll be the first world's the first the world's first trillionaire. But that's not true, actually. Solomon uh, historians have have uh, factored in um, inflation and and uh, exchange rate and all of that. And the what Solomon had to his name made him worth a trillion dollars over three thousand years ago. So Solomon was the first world's the first the world's first trillionaire, and up until 2020, the only trillionaire in history. And uh, so he had access like nobody else in life has ever had access. And that's what gives him authority to write this book. And what he says about it all, about all the access he had, and this is so important because we all think that if we had more access, if we had more money, if we had more fame, more whatever, that life would be better. And he says, nope, I had it all, and it's all meaningless. The last couple of weeks as we've looked at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, Solomon is realizing that things under the sun, while they don't have meaning on their own, they can have meaning. They only have meaning if you have a relationship with the one beyond the sun, with God. Apart from God, there is no meaning. Or as Jesus said uh, to his disciples and those listening to him teach in John chapter 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. So pleasure, wisdom, and work, which are the big overarching concepts that Solomon's touched on so far, cannot provide purpose and satisfaction on their own. But even still, these things were created for our enjoyment. Okay, they're meant to give us purpose and satisfaction, but only with God. See, something created means that there is a creator, right? And a creator determines how things function. So an inventor that invented an engine, invent, this, is, this is an example that C.S. Lewis gives, uh, an inventor that invented an engine invented it to work on fuel, not vinegar or anything else, okay? Um, and as C.S. Lewis says, likewise, the human machine runs on God himself. This is how the creator, God, has made us, to run on him. So in order... Let's say, let's say we're like a vehicle. In order to effectively travel the paths of pleasure, wisdom, and work, in order to fulfill our purpose and have meaning, a car is meant to travel. A car is meant to carry to a destination. In order to fulfill our purpose and have meaning, to travel these paths that we were made to travel of pleasure, wisdom, and work, we must be fueled by the Creator. Our source for all life and for fulfilling our purpose and meaning is the Creator God. This brings up a problem for Solomon now. While Solomon has come to the place in his experiment where he acknowledges God and God's design, Solomon's not particularly happy about God and God's design. What, what do I mean by that? Well, I think we see this in culture um, as people talk about God and their relationship with God in culture. Uh, a really good example of this is most recently, it's become really popular for Christian people in the spotlight to publicly share their faith deconstruction is the term that's being used in the social media world. Uh, basically, to share their story about newfound disillusionment with the Christian beliefs they grew up with. And there's a, there's a story uh, right now in the news, just released this past week, um, about John Steingard, the f former frontman for a Christian band that I loved growing up and as a youth pastor and stuff, um, called Hawk Nelson. Okay, it's a Christian rock band 
and uh, and John Steingard was their guitarist originally. Like I think going back as as far as 2004 when I graduated high school, and then in 2012 he became the front man for the band, and he actually directed them to be even more um, overtly Christian to to really ramp up their lyrics to teach the Christian message. But now he's posted just this past week a story on his Instagram. Uh, where he he tells all about his Christian upbringing as a pastor's son, and basically compares his journey to his his faith to being a sweater, and he's been on this journey. He put on the sweater because it was what everyone in his family and friend circle wore, but then he says he's been on this journey from sincere belief to renouncing those beliefs, and it's like he's been pulling the strings of the sweater until it gradually unraveled. Okay, he put on the sweater because everybody else was that's what everybody he cared about was wearing and now he's he's been pulling at the strings and it's really started to unravel and he talks about how he was afraid to share that like you might be embarrassed to take your shirt off or for your shirt to come unraveled but now that the shirt's off he's realized it's not that bad and um and he can move on with his life he feels free. Okay? Um Interestingly, he concludes that he's not an atheist. Okay, uh, atheist comes from uh, comes from this term atheos, ah being atheos without God. Okay, um, he says rather he is agnostic, and that comes from agnosko, which means gnosko means knowledge, so it means without knowledge. So he's not he's saying I'm not without God, I'm just without knowledge. Like I'm open to God, but this is what he says specifically. He says just not the way that I've always read about him in the Bible. Interesting, interesting. It, what, what he essentially said, he, he acknowledges God in his design. He's just not particularly happy about what God and his design looks like in the world that he lives in, and here's the key, under the sun. Okay? This is this is we're seeing this with all kinds of Christian people and celebrities, past prominent pastors and uh, and musicians and all, there was recently a big uh, leader in the in the worship te- team from Hillsong who posted a public deep faith deconstruction and um, lots of people are doing this and what it is boiling down to essentially is they feel like if God is who they were taught he is, there are some things that are distinctly out of whack with what he has been said to have done in Scripture and the way that things are in the world. If, if he was really a good God, wouldn't things be different, right? They're, that's where their doubt's coming from. Now, before we go any further, I want to just stop and say this is not a bad place to be. This kind of deconstruction can lead us to a healthier and stronger relationship with God. Like going through a crucible. Have you ever heard of a crucible? Crucible is is, um, used to cleanse impurities and precious metals. uh, It gets extremely hot and melts the metals down so that the impurities can be uh, removed and and then the metal can be reshaped and reformed into something new and better. It can be transformed. Um, uh, 
And this is, this is what a, a faith deconstruction is like. It's like going through a crucible. Okay, we have this opportunity with these deconstructions that, to arrive at a better place, to be transformed into something new and better. But this is, this is what's really important about going through a crucible, is that the crucible is just part of the journey. It's not the destination. It's not a place that you're meant to stay for long. Where a lot of people get lost in these moments is they stay in the fire, they, uh, which allows the fire to burn and scar them into something even more misshapen than before. But if you go through the crucible and allow it to do its work, not staying there, not living in the fire, not turning into just this hot, burning, angry, um, skeptical person, but go through the fire and come out to be reshapen, you can be something new and better. So as we continue our study this week, we're going to walk with Solomon through this crucible, exploring the problems he has as he deconstructs God and God's design and how to deal with it, okay? Um, the first problem that Solomon has is life isn't fair. Life isn't fair. So let's pick this up in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. Skip down to chapter 4, verse 1, because he kind of sums this all up. He says, Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressed's oppressors, and they have no comfort. Wow. Dark stuff. He says, essentially, I struggle with God and His design because I look out at the world and I don't see any justice. I don't see things adding up to the way they should be. Where I should see good people getting good things returned to them and bad people getting the comeuppance they deserve, that's not what I see at all. Johnny Christian should always win and Paul Pagan should always lose. But that's not life. He says, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there, which is uh, an even bigger problem. He's saying that even the systems that are supposed to protect us are actually wicked and they perpetuate wickedness even further. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. All right? the world, he says the world is full of oppressors, abusers, traffickers, murderers, manipulators, uh, corrupt leaders. And good can't seem to win out because even the systems that are supposed to protect from those kinds of people are broken. They're wicked themselves. They do not carry out justice. They add to the wickedness. In fact, let me ask you this. Are you planning to watch the news this week? Let me tell you what you're going to see. Here's a brief news break. This is Stephen Morrison from coming to you live from CNAZ at 6 o'clock. Today, bad people did bad things. In other news, some other bad people did some other bad things. And our final story of the evening where comes to us from our correspondent who reports that all of nature is bad too. Sickness and natural disasters abound. Everything is doomed by evil. This has been a live news break from CNAZ at 6. Thank you for joining us.
right? If you're going to watch the news, all you're going to hear about is bad, bad, bad. No justice, just wickedness. No uh, judge, no good judgment, just wickedness. Solomon is observing the same thing. And so he's asking, so if meaning and purpose are found in God and His design, what if I'm not sure God and His design are very fair? Do I want to find meaning and purpose in that case? What would be the point of putting my hope in a God and God's world if He can't even hold it intact, if He can't prevent the chaos? Now there's a bit of irony here. Solomon is pointing out how powerful people not only do nothing to make the world a fair place, but they actually add to the unfairness. They actually add to the wickedness. Here's a question. What is Solomon's role in the world that he's living in? Isn't he the most powerful of the powerful? So surely, of course, he'd be fair since he's so concerned about it, right? And wrong. After he dies, his advisors tell his son that he needs to go easier on the people because his dad, Solomon, taxed the people so harshly and forced them to work to do voluntary labor for the kingdom constantly to build up the kingdom. And, and what did they build up? I mean, sure, they built up a nice temple and whatever, but they also built Solomon's vacation home in Lebanon and, and, and added to his pools. And Solomon, I mean, where did Solomon get the money to bring in all those exotic animals we talked about, the peacocks and, and, uh, and the, the exotic cats and whatever? He was well-known around the world for having the biggest collection of, of plants and animals and stuff that he had. Where did he get all that money? From taxing the people. And so here he is, he's looking and he's saying, man, I see all the oppression. God isn't fair. His own advisors say, wait a second. This unfairness you see in the world, you put a heavy burden on the people. That's a sad bit of irony. But it's not just a sad bit of irony. There's a point to all this. And that is, it's easy to look out at the world and suggest there is something wrong with God and His design or that He doesn't exist altogether because of unfairness in the world. However, when it comes to unfairness in the world, where is the best place to start? With yourself. With yourself. Have you ever heard the saying, whenever you point your finger, there's three more pointing back at you? That's what that means. So there's unfairness in the world. What am I doing about it? What am I doing to alleviate suffering? Is there anything that I am doing that causes the tears of the oppressed? This is part of the answer to Solomon's question. If he's concerned about unfairness in the world, then be a part of making it fair. Start with yourself, but you cannot say that God is not making the world fair when what's making the world unfair is the free will that He's given to you. It's very generous and fair that God has given us free will. If we use that free will to pervert and destroy the world and others around us, then it's not God who has a problem. It's us. We like to get all self-righteous about God's hand in the world so that we can ignore that we're the source of injustice, not Him. It's a lot easier to blame God and suggest there is no God than to go about the hard work of making the world the place He intended to be to begin with. And 
if God is real, it doesn't do us any good to say to say we don't like his design. That's like sawing off the tree branch you're perched on. Because consider that if you think there is a God and you just haven't found the one that suits your fancies, like, okay, if God is really good, then he would be like this. That's what I mean by suits your fancies. And you say, well, I don't believe in the Christian God because they say he's like that, but he allows all this. Well, where did your ability to reason about what is just and what is right and what is true come from? Because all created things have a creator. So where did that ability to reason come from about it? Maybe, maybe just maybe it came from God. He put those fancies in your head because that's what he is like. And that's the way that he designed the world. And so when you see things that are out of whack with the way that he designed it, you say, that's unjust. That's unfair. But the answer is not to point the finger at God. It's to realize that you're able to call that unjust. You're able to call that unfair because he wired you that way. And now he wants you to look at the injustices of the world and figure out how you can bring more justice by, through your life. He wants you to be like him holy and just, so that the world will look just a little bit more like him. Instead of pointing the finger at him, he wants you to look at, he wants you to realize where your sense of justice came from and realize that if you give your life to carrying out that justice, that the world will look a little bit more the way that he intended it to be. Now, here's the thing. That does not mean that life is totally fair that if you do your part, that everything will go well for you or for everyone or for anyone else. You could do your part and still see and experience a great deal of unfair, seemingly random suffering. In fact, sometimes it seems like the very best people have the worst lot dealt to them in life, doesn't it? It can really feel like cosmic powers are just throwing darts at a map or even ignoring the map completely. And Solomon totally agrees. Look at, look at the juxtaposition he's got going on in his heart. Verse 17, he says, I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. I also thought in my heart, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Okay, so he's having juxtaposing thoughts. On the one hand, he figures that God must work it all out in the end. On the other hand, though, he's, he, it's verse 17, he says, oh, I, you know what? On the one hand, I think God will bring this all to judgment in the end. The righteous and the wicked will be judged, and he will reward them. It'll all come out in the wash. But then on the other hand, he says, you know what else, though? It kind of feels like we're at fate's merciless hand, the same as animals. That all of these tests and stuff that we go through is just to show us that we're so small and so pithy, so, so teeny tiny to God, that we're really not that different from the animals. He says, he says you know, think about the animals. You, a, a cow can be a great cow, you know, chew his cud and just keep to himself and make great milk and put out good babies for, for the farmer. But at the end of the day, the cow can still end up on the menu of Five Guys Burgers and Fries. Or, or think of a little dog. A, a perfect little dog can just be so cute and adorable and free and full of energy and uh, full of life to enjoy the world. 
and that same perfect little dog can end up getting purchased by someone who's going to put ugly little sweaters on it and carry it around in a purse. Like, what an unlucky lot in life for a dog, right? Or how about this? Let's flip it around uh, for some more personally relatable randomness. Think about this. A dog born in America very likely is going to enjoy a very pampered life, right? Now, dogs in America are, you know, man's best friend. They are treated at the, pin at the pinnacle of, of animals. But a dog born in South Korea is going to be served for dinner. So Solomon's saying, hey, life is just as random for people. Like, God, all these tests we go through, God's just trying to show us we're no different than animals and all the random fate that they face. Think about it Think about it another way. A cow born in America is very likely going to be someone's dinner, right? A steak, a burger, a uh, ribeye, whatever. You know, a cow in America is going to be someone's dinner, but a cow born in India, revered and worshipped. In fact, I've, I've read stories about this. Planes are delayed from landing due to cows on runways. Hundreds of people suspended in midair waiting for cows to get off the runway, and they won't run them off the runways because they are at the, at the height of reincarnation. You know, they, they're not going to mess with them. They are highly revered. And uh, it got me to thinking, I guess, if the plane runs out of f fuel, those people on that plane just become an honorable sacrifice to the cow gods, right? <laughs> so Solomon says, yeah, it kind of seems like it's just as random for people. You can see that sometimes life seems as random as the animal kingdom where survival of the fittest reigns. It's like real-life hunger games. Just this big game, this big test to amuse the higher power. Solomon ramps it up with another point he is rather consumed with. You've, you've heard him basically say this uh, over and over again in these first three chapters. He, he says, life isn't fair, and then he says, and then you die. And then you die. Verse 19, man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. In other words, you know, we're all breathing in the same air. It's no different. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. So life isn't fair, then you die. You win the Hunger Games, psych! You're still going to die. You didn't die today, but you're still going to die. Just like the animals, life is just a quiet march to the grave. Even if you can survive the unfairness, even if you can cheat the fates, whether you're buried in a human cemetery or a pet cemetery, we all end up as worm buffets. Maybe, maybe you can totally relate to this hopelessness. Maybe, you can totally, maybe you're totally feeling that right now. Like, what's the point? And can I just tell you, if so, that's okay? That's okay? Do you know how I know it's okay? Because it's a part of the story that God, by His power, has preserved in the Scriptures to, and, and to retell to His people generation to generation. Okay? The question is, are you going to be warped by the fire, the crucible that you're in, this, this crucible of doubt, this crucible of pain, this crucible of despair, this crucible of hopelessness, are you going to just stay in the fire and just be eternally warped, eternally burned, eternally scarred by life? Or are you going to give in to the fire for a time and be transformed into something new and better? Come out 
and allow yourself to be molded into something new and better. You, you need to understand why Solomon keeps leaning into this hopelessness. If you, if you relate to it, let, let, in just a minute we're going to talk about why he leans into this hopelessness. That this isn't, he's not just despairing for despair's sake. Remember, he had a purpose in all of this. And let me talk to another group of people. Maybe you can't relate to this hopelessness at all and you are just so tired of this study already. We're only six weeks in and you're tired of the study and its seeming hopelessness. I want to I ask you to just consider. Maybe, maybe you feel like this has become kind of a broken record. Solomon's on a broken record. Pastor Stephen's on a broken record. But I want, to just ask, I want you to ask yourself why God thought it so important for this story to be passed down generation to generation of His people. Death is a central theme and focus here so that there must be some important things that God wants us to think about and learn from. Okay? Uh, so, so I want, want you to lean into and see why Solomon keeps addressing the hopelessness of death. And the crux of the issue is in verse 21. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? So, so he says, hey, conventional wisdom amongst all cultures is that animals die and that's it. Except for our Western culture, right? We, we want to believe that all dogs go to heaven. That's not typically what has been believed uh, through the ages. But hey, I don't know either. And that's kind of Solomon's point. He says, hey, conventional wisdom amongst all cultures that animals die and that's it. But for humans, there's something more. And Solomon asks, but really if you think about it, who really actually knows that? I mean, that's the conventional wisdom, but how does anybody know that? Because after all, isn't the only way you could know the animals go down to earth and humans have something more eternal is to die. There's no living person that can know these things, right? So there's a, he's, he's kind of having this existential uh, problem with his faith. He's saying, here's another problem then. All these religions, mine included, appear to have an equal shot at being right about what happens when you die. I mean, Solomon has people coming to him from the all, all over the world to hear his wisdom, but he's also hearing what they believe and what they think they know. And so he is filtering that with everything that he has been raised on and everything he's chosen to believe. And he's saying, hey, who really knows though? Who really knows about eternity and God and all of that? And that's kind of what, going back to John Steingard from Hawk Nelson, that's kind of what he shares, one of the main stories he shares. He talks about, see, not only did he grow up a pastor's kid, but he married a pastor's daughter. And he said he was talking to his father-in-law, a pastor, about a scripture in the New Testament that didn't sit well with what he understood about God and what he understood about his creation and so he was asking his father-in-law, how do you reconcile this? And um, his father-in-law saying, well, did you read that verse in this version of translation of the Bible? And uh, the, he, his father-in-law says, I wouldn't read it in that translation because it's not an accurate reflection. And so John's saying, well, what I'm thinking is, so you're saying that translations are human and flawed? And his father-in-law correctly said, yes. 
And so, so John says, well, you keep telling me to go back to the Bible, so what do I do with that? And his father-in-law says, well, you've you got to go back to the original Greek. And John says, well, I just took that to the logical conclusion. If the translations now are human and flawed, why wouldn't the Hebrew or the Greek be human and flawed? And some of you might immediately be going to 2 Timothy 3.16 and saying, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for. Well, <laughs> that's what a flawed human person said. And we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired that, yes. But who really knows? That's still a choice of faith. And what John's saying is there's so many variables. Like some people believe this interpretation. Some people believe that interpretation. And if I cannot rely on Scripture, then what's left? Then what's left? That's the question he asked his father-in-law. Or actually, his father-in-law asked him. And John says, well, the Greek is flawed. And his father-in-law says, so what's left? And John said, exactly. Exactly. Now, that leads me to a quick aside. I want to just address something. The church for several decades has been pointing people to Scripture almost as a fourth member of the Trinity. The Trinity is God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And people sometimes treat the Bible as though it is God as well. And that, that's a misnomer, my friends. The Bible was not made, is not the end-all, be-all of our faith. John's question, what's left if the Bible is, has the potential um, to, to, to the risk of human frailty? Okay, that's a whole other thing to talk about. But let me tell you what's left. What is left? Jesus is left. The answer is not the Scriptures. Hey, don't hear me wrong on this, though. I'm not saying that the Scriptures aren't God-breathed, and I'm not saying that they aren't useful for instruction and rebuke and all of those things. I, I am living my life on truths from Scripture, and I'm teaching my children, and I believe that it is inspired words of God. But just like pleasure and wisdom and work, the Scriptures are meaningless apart from God. They're, they're meaningless apart from God. And Jesus is the Word made flesh. That's what these Scriptures tell us. Jesus is the ultimate Word, the final Word, the exact Word, the accurate Word, the perfect Word. Okay? So all of the human flaws are, wrapped, are, are washed away in the perfect human God-man, Jesus Christ. And that is what we're left with. So when we struggle with Scripture, when we struggle to understand, that's when we, that, that is not the end of the world. Because Jesus, there, within Jesus there are no flaws. Okay, The Bible does reflect flawed humanity. It reflects the flawed humanity who recorded it, and it reflects the flawed humanity that are recorded in its stories. But here's the thing, the Bible does not try to hide this. Instead, the Bible points to, and this is, this, is what, this is what one of the main themes of Scripture, we see Israel was supposed to be the people of God, and yet they fail again and again and again. But, nonetheless, the Israelite people point to what? Who, rather? Jesus. 
And that's what the Scriptures do. In spite of whatever questions you may have, in spite of whatever flaws you are skeptical of, the Scriptures point to a historical man, Jesus. And His existence is not in question. What is in question is is Jesus who He says He is? Did He rise from the dead and therefore will He do everything that He promised? Okay? The Scriptures point to Emmanuel, God with us as an unflawed human so that the world of flawed humanity can have a perfect, unflawed picture of God. That's what Hebrews 1.3 says. Jesus is the exact representation of the living God. Jesus is, that's, that's word for word, the exact representation, okay? That is the answer to John Steingard's question. That's the answer to these doubts. Where you see discrepancies in Scripture that make you question what is God really like? What is His character? You look to the person of Jesus. He is the exact representation. There's all kinds of questions, good questions, about God's fairness, about the Scripture's veracity, about creation and what really happened. But it all boils down to what do you think about Jesus and the resurrection? You can sort out all those questions, but as Jesus said, apart from Him, you can do nothing. Apart from Him, you can't sort out any of these questions. You need Jesus. And people have been dying based on this choice for centuries now. And not extremism, not religious extremism, though some have certainly perverted his message that way, but countless people have died with a humble faith in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. In fact, Jesus' own family believed and died according to their faith. And I just, I can't escape this. What would it take for you to believe your child or to believe your brother is God in the flesh? A resurrection at least, right? Right? A resurrection at least. If I'm going to believe that my brother is God, he's going to at least have to rise from the dead. Okay? If I'm going to die for him because I believe he is God, he's going to at least have to rise from the dead. And not only did they, but, but dozens, hundreds, thousands, millions of people have put their faith in Jesus. The, their faith in the Scriptures follows from their faith in Jesus. But everything stands on Jesus. Everything rises and falls on Jesus. Paul in 1 Corinthians does not say that if the Scriptures have problems, then, then Christians should be considered fools above all men. No, he says if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are fools above all other men. Okay? Jesus and the resurrection is at the center of all of this. So, as Solomon and John Steingart and all of us have our doubts together, the answer, is what, the answer is to consider, what do we believe about Jesus? Jesus' life proves that living under the sun can be quite the crucible. But it also proved we can come out of that crucible and live beyond the sun. That we can live beyond the sun. Okay, Jesus went through the crucible of this life. He went through the unfairness of life. He experienced the ultimate unfairness. Jesus was the only perfect human being, and He died a criminal's death. If anybody knows the unfairness and the injustice of our world, it is Jesus. But He went through that crucible and came out to resurrection life on the other side. And that's the invitation that you and I have. And so, 
that's our final point this evening as we finish these verses. Life isn't fair, then you die. Deal with it. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that in an insensitive way. Give me a chance to explain. Deal with it. Verse 22, this is how Solomon is dealing with it. He says, So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? That's what he's saying. Who can, who can, who can go into his future when he dies to see what happens after he dies? So I guess I'll just live in the moment, live in this life. Uh, 4 verse 2, he says, And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Whoa, (laughs) so depressing, Solomon, so depressing. He says, life isn't fair, then you die. And do you know what? It'd be better if you were dead. Do you know? In fact, it'd be better if you didn't live at all. But here's how I want to conclude. Life isn't fair, then you die. We've got to deal with it. There's three different ways you can deal with it. You can give it no more thought. You can give up. Or you can give in. So let me, let me go through those things real quick. Number one, you can, as you realize life isn't fair and then you die, you can deal with it this way. You can just give it no more thought. You can ignore it. You can avoid the controversial conversation. You can just avoid thinking about your mortality and and basically just live for the moment live for the pleasure live for the wisdom live for the work just just live your life and enjoy life and pretend like there isn't that that your mortality isn't going to catch up with you just make the best of this life that you can and then you'll you'll deal with eternity when the time comes you can just give it no more thought. Just ignore it. Pretend like it's not there. But that's, that's what's so crucial about Ecclesiastes. Is Solomon is saying, I set out on this and my sons, I want you to pay attention to the teacher. We need to be thinking about this. So if you think about it, then you have a second option. You could just give up. And that's what Solomon does in verse 2 and 3. He says, you know what? I wish I was dead. I wish I could just die. In fact, I wish I'd never been born. It would be better that way. Did you ever say that to your parents when, I, when you were growing up? Wish I'd never been born. Wish I could just die. Have you ever thought those thoughts? That's how you can deal with the unfairness of life. You could just give up. You can just quit. Just throw in the towel and come what may. But there's a third option. If, as you think about unfairness, as you think about God and His design, as you think about the fact that we're all going to die like animals, you could, instead of giving up, you could give in. See, it's true that life isn't fair. It's true that the design is broken. Not because the designer created a broken machine, but because His creation didn't follow the design. But here's the thing. is Life isn't fair and the design isn't broken because God isn't involved, because He doesn't care, because He's just throwing random darts at a map. It's not because God didn't know what He was doing. The reality is, God became flesh. The ultimate involvement. He became His creation. He entered in and suffered as we all suffer. There is no pain that He does not know. There is no temptation that He does not know. So God is involved. 
He's entered into His creation. And God, God knows what He's doing. In fact, God's good plan never stopped working for us. From the beginning, to the, in the beginning, when he, said, when he warned us, if you sin, you will surely die. He made a contingency plan so that, they would, so that they would not die. Something else died instead. Animals died to clothe His children and cover up their shame so that they could live on in His creation. God from the beginning has been recreating, reforming, transforming our lives in the crucible of the suffering that we created to lead us to resurrection life. And His plan was always to do it by personally getting involved. He never stopped watching us. He never stopped seeing us. He never stopped listening to us. He was involved even when we tried to push Him away. And you have the choice. You could give in. You could decide that I don't understand it all. I still have unanswered questions. But Jesus is enough, enough to, to give in. To surrender to Him. It's true that everything dies and that that is a hopeless situation under the sun. And it's true that no one really knows what happens when we die. But Jesus is the answer to that too because Jesus says, I am the way. Okay, You don't know what happens after you die, but I'll show you the way. I'll show you how to walk into eternity and I'll, I'll lead you when you come into eternity. Jesus says, I am the truth. I know all things about past, present, and future about mortality and eternity. And I will, I will lead you in truth. Jesus says, I am the life. Yes, life under the sun is a crucible. It's suffering. It's difficult. It's unfair. But I have come so that you might have life, life to the full. I endured it all. I took it all upon myself. I became sin and all of its brokenness and all of its flaws so that you could have my righteousness. I didn't know sin. There was nothing wrong with me. There was nothing wrong with my design. But I became it so that you could have the perfection and the holiness and the goodness of me for yourself. I became what you were so that you could become what I am. So you have this choice to give in. To give in to Jesus. I want to remind you and encourage you. It's okay if you're feeling hopeless. It's okay if you're feeling doubt. I also want to point you in the, dire in, in, in the right direction. The, the right direction is not found in, in all the answers to these really difficult questions. The right direction is Jesus, and He will help you sort these things out as you walk, with, walk through the crucible with Him. Heavenly Father, I just want to lift those who are struggling to You. John Steingard, who I don't know personally, and anybody that I do know personally, and anyone else who may have doubt, Lord, I just pray that you would come to them um, by your Spirit and reveal yourself to them in Jesus. I pray that, that, they, that, that anyone who's struggling, and Lord, I pray that you would lead me when I'm struggling. Maybe that's something that people don't know, that, that I struggle too. I have big questions about this stuff. Sometimes I'm forced to do a funeral or put in, put in a situation um, of witnessing some really awful things and being, uh, being spirit, a spiritual guide and things that just don't make sense. And it really wreck, wrecks my faith. It really messes with me. Lord, help us to be vulnerable with one another and not be afraid to show 
what we're struggling with and not feel and, and be able to find safe places um, where we know we won't be judged for working these things out. And Lord, I just pray that, that Jesus would show us the way, that Jesus would reveal to us the truth, and that Jesus would give us life. Pray that you would empower us to give in, to surrender to you, so that we could find our purpose and meaning. Lord, help us not to ignore these things and help us not to be ruined with despair and give up, but rather just to give in to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.